Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White. And I'm Dr. Mika Petrucci. And And this this is is The Science of Motherhood. Motherhood. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the podcast. I am your host, Dr. Renee White. My co-host, Dr. Mika Petrucci, is currently on mat leave. For all those long-time listeners, uh, you will recall that she is at home enjoying the snuggles of her second baby at the moment. So she is having a lovely break with him. Today, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Dr. Stephanie Perotta from Monash University. And for all those who are familiar with Mika and my background, we are actually Monash alumni. So this is actually our first Monash academic that we have interviewed for the podcast. So it's kind of got a bit of a personal touch to it. But I first came across Steph when she was providing some really interesting content around polycystic ovarian syndrome and endometriosis. And the former topic, PCOS, is what we will be deep diving into today. Dr. Stephanie Perotta is a registered dietitian nutritionist and research academic specialising in evidence-based nutrition for improved fertility, PCOS and endometriosis. And the thing I really love about Steph's research is that she was a nutritionist and dietitian first. And then once she was in the clinic, she started to identify some issues along the way where there just seemed to be a bit of a a mismatch between the patients she was seeing and what the medical system was providing. And as she eloquently highlights on her website, following the completion of her master's in dietetics and while working as a dietitian, she felt compelled towards the specific area of women's nutrition. And that's when she embarked on a PhD in the field of polycystic ovarian syndrome to better understand the needs of women with this complex condition through research. And as you may be aware, it is a highly, highly complex condition. No one still to this day, 2021, understands the full mechanism or how PCOS actually eventuates within women. And so what Steph did was that she essentially bridged the gap between the patient group and the medical system. And she developed um, evidence-based lifestyle programs that meets the needs of those women in consultation with 
the medical physicians and teams around it. And what you'll hear is that her research demonstrated some key findings and those findings without being a complete spoiler alert and it really does make sense is that women with PCOS really require a team around them. It requires a team of physicians who actually have an expertise in PCOS, not just a general practitioner. They require a nutritionist, dietitian, psychologist, and perhaps endocrinologists, as well as personal trainers and or others in the fitness industry to assist with managing the symptoms of PCOS. As I alluded to earlier, Steph is also um, an avid researcher in the area of endometriosis. We have saved that interview for a few episodes to come. So please stay tuned for that one as well. But without further ado, here is Dr. Stephanie Perotta. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Stephanie Perotta. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, Renee. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. Now, Steph, um, I was following you on Instagram because I found your content so informative around polycystic ovarian syndrome. I know that this affects a lot of women. I reached out to our audience via Instagram and there was quite a number of, of ladies who kind of came forward and they were telling me about their issues with diagnosis, um, whether it be misdiagnosis, overdiagnosis, underdiagnosis, it seems to be a really, really challenging area. Can you kind of step us through what is polycystic ovarian syndrome? Yes. So there's definitely been a bit of an increase in understanding and awareness of the syndrome of PCOS in the last, I'd say, two to three years from the general public and also GPs and other specialists, which is awesome. So we are getting better at it. But essentially, polycystic ovary syndrome is the an endocrine or a hormonal uh, condition. It is the most common hormone condition in women of reproductive age. So that's normally about 16, 18 to about 40. Mm-hmm. And it has about 10%, about 10% of women of reproductive age have it across the world. In Australia, it's about one to 13%. They don't really have a, yeah, but probably about 13% in Australia of women have it. It's diagnosed generally about by having two out of three conditions. Now, if you can see now soon that the name is actually um, a bit confusing, but the criteria for having PCOS is either having two out of the, these three. So the first is you have a clinical presentation of symptoms or there's biochem, so it comes up in the test results. So, for example, clinical would be what you can see. So maybe there's acne or there's weight gain or there's hair loss on the head or there's extra hair normally around the face, for example. That There's some of the presentations. Another one from in terms of blood tests could be that there's high androgens, so high, high, for example, testosterone or high other kind of male characteristic hormones. 
And there tends to be also sometimes, and this is the leading kind of, we think anyway, uh, contributor to PCOS is insulin resistance. So insulin is not, which is a hormone, is not really working well in the body. And that's kind of leading to all the the symptoms and the problems that that are being caused by PCOS. The second dot point is oligo or an ovulation, which means that there is either no ovulation taking place or there is irregular ovulation taking place. And then the third one is polycystic ovaries. And you normally get an ultrasound with that. So because it's two out of those three, a woman might not actually have polycystic ovaries, but still have PCOS. So when they named the name together, they thought you had to have polycystic ovaries to have the syndrome. But now as research comes out and we know a little bit better about it, we actually realise that you don't have to have the cystic ovaries. Um, And then there's another thing, which is not PCOS, but it's PCOM, so polycystic ovary morphology. So there are cystic ovaries, which is actually very common, but it doesn't have the syndrome. So the syndrome is when there is cystic ovaries, but there are other things added to it. So normally there's insulin resistance or you have those increasing androgens or, or, or you have acne or there's weight gain. You know, there's other symptoms there. So that's when it becomes a syndrome. But you can also have PCOM or polycystic ovary morphology. So there are many cysts in the ovaries without having PCOS. And so sometimes we might see women for PCOS, but actually it hasn't been fully confirmed yet and they actually have PCOM. So there's no syndrome or um, sometimes vice versa. But normally... Normally, there's, if, if anything, women would come up to us with PCOS, but actually PCOM, or the, the diagnosis is still yet to be confirmed. And so we see the individual for whatever you know, early kind of treatment, I suppose, or prevention. But that's basically in a nutshell. What causes it? We don't really fully know. But as I alluded, alluded to it before, it's more, we think, underlying kind of insulin resistance. So that's when the hormone insulin, which is used to take basically sugar from the blood to the rest of the body for us to actually have enough energy in the body to work properly is not being recognized by by the body itself. So the body makes more insulin and then the rest of the body is like, hello, I need I need energy and why are you not eating, but you actually are eating. So then you get cravings and things like this because your body is kind of basically starved of energy and, and, and non-nourished. And that's why a lot of women also experience cravings or sweet cravings or kind of maybe have a little bit of erratic eating it's not because it's their fault or they have it's if they're doing something wrong it's actually because of insulin I mean it's not being well controlled or, or well recognized in the body so there's a few things then that we can look at but that insulin resistance then drives the changes in hormones eating as well but eating behaviors changes in weight and it kind of makes a lot of the symptoms worse it also then does lead to changes in ovulation and all these things and has an impact on fertility. And so one of the main things is to really try and improve insulin sensitivity and reduce, if there is actually insulin resistance clinically diagnosed, that we try and better that through behavior change. So whether that's through diet or physical activity, and sometimes if there's psychology is required there, that we look at that. Yeah, and then sometimes medication is required, not always though. But if if required, yeah, medication would be recommended. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, There's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. Okay, so what I'm hearing is that there's – so you've got to tick essentially two of these three boxes. And Mm -hmm. I guess during my research I found it 
very interesting how there seemed to be this flux between how you actually diagnose it. You know, medical professionals mm-hmm. across the world were having issues with that because yeah. some of those symptoms that you were describing essentially are very normal, particularly mm-hmm. in adolescence, mm-hmm. you know, and puberty and, and things yeah. like that. And so mm-hmm. I, I'm curious to know... Is PCOS something that is genetic or is it acquired? Can and once you have it, is it that for life? Mm, How does question. it work? Mm. So let's start with kind of leading on to your, your first question about diagnosis. I just need to make it clear that PCOS is not diagnosed during the teenage years okay. because there is that kind of irregular you know, when, when a woman starts getting a period, she's a bit irregular, there's a bit of pain sometimes or whatever. So it's a bit hard to diagnose. So from memory, this was the latest that came out from the latest guidelines. And I think it's at least two years of regular periods that you can actually get diagnosed. But normally it's 18 and onwards. You try and, yeah, as a teenager, it's it's recommended not to get diagnosed. But you just look at it basically and follow up for a few years and see what happens if there's any changes. But once you are diagnosed, it doesn't really go away. So that's why lifestyle change is important because you manage it and you can reduce the severity of symptoms. So you can't reverse PCOS uh, in a way. I suppose if you're managing it well with behaviour change and medication, it can seem like you don't have anything. So you might not experience a lot of the symptoms or only experience them very mildly or infrequently. But it if you were to stop the medication or maybe something happens in terms of you stop behavior change for whatever reason, it, it will. it's never gone and come back. It was always there. It was just better managed. Now, I did allude to that it is mostly diagnosed women of reproductive age. So because it's diagnosed, doesn't go away, it does then go into women outside of that. So as we get older, um, women still have PCOS and they experience different symptoms obviously not as bad because the hormones change and uh, when menopause hits obviously we don't have a period anymore and all these things actually the symptoms tend to be much better controlled and we do know that as we get older this the for example periods or whatever reason hormonal changes they actually get shorter and better controlled and more regular but the women will still be experiencing or have PCOS even when they're older. They just don't get the symptoms as badly. But actually there's less research to understand how PCOS impacts women later on in their life. It's mostly during reproductive age. But you can't, yeah, in a nutshell, if you have it, it'll be there. And it's just about managing it and trying to reduce the symptoms as much as possible. And any of the associated diseases or your risk of them is all about managing them too as you get older. Right. Okay. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to shift gears and, okay, let's talk about the research around PCOS. Mm -hmm. That's obviously your your expertise and you've just completed your PhD in this area and Mm -hmm. as well as the fact that you're a registered dietitian and nutritionist. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to us what was your research for your PhD around? Yeah. So my research was at Monash um, University, Monash Health, based in Melbourne. And I looked at, it's a bit of a what we call like an, an implementation science PhD, where we were trying to translate the recommendations or the research that's coming out for PCOS into actual practice, so into healthcare. So it's not just kind of like a guideline or 
a paper or recommendations actually things are happening and, and women are experiencing healthcare that's meeting their needs. So at Monash, we were trying to implement kind of, I suppose, a trial of changes in, in healthcare services. And then at this moment, I were trying to upscale them to other, other areas uh, across Australia and even worldwide, really. But my research in doing that was all about trying to understand what those healthcare services and what the healthcare needs of women PCOS are. So I looked at some of uh, do we, for example, do we need psychology and a focus on um, eating behaviours and maybe eating disorders? What do, do women with uh, PCOS need with in relation to that? Do they have increased risk of eating disorders or disordered eating in an Australian context? And so I looked at that and we found, yes, there, there are some needs there. And then I had some mixed methods research. So we had interviews and I did some surveys with women um, from the general public with PCOS to understand what are the what services? If there is a service, first of all, would you use it? What type of information would you want to be included in that? How would you want to be presented? You know, how long should a session be? Or how many sessions do you want to see? Who do you want to lead the sessions? Do you want to see an endocrinologist, a GP, a nurse, a dietitian, an exercise physiologist, all of the above? So these types of things is what we wanted to understand. And then I kind of so knowing the what actually women wanted, also what PCOS healthcare professionals wanted. So there is a PCOS clinic at Monash so that's kind of started, but it was originally not informed solely from what women and health professionals want. So I looked at the health professionals in the clinic working, what they found from their learnings of working in the clinic and how can we improve them and what do they want to better their, their services and how they can improve their care. And then we used a few kind of you know, in research, you know, like frameworks and things to help with implementation and translation of, of, the, of all the research and findings that we found. And so now we're trying to implement that. So that's basically in a nutshell what I was trying to do. And what, were those, to- what were those leading, I guess, strategies that you're now trying to implement? Because by the sounds of things, it's, it's, it's very similar to, and I think people with who are not in the science kind of profession may not appreciate the fact that there are always these guidelines out there. I mean, Mm. I was talking with um, Lily Nichols, the um, nutritionist and dietitian who specialises in pregnancy and postpartum, Mm. and that's essentially her entire jam. There are are these guidelines out there, but in reality, you know, what do they mean for the patient and or healthcare professional? Mm. Um, Because... Mm. Typically, the patients aren't involved in those guidelines, that's mm-hmm. my understanding, and mm-hmm. or they're extremely outdated. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I w- I'd love to hear what are the types of things that, that you heard from both the patient and the healthcare professionals and, yeah. and did, they, did they marry up at all? Mm. So in terms of the guidelines being developed, this, this one, I do know the latest one, they did have a lot of say from health professionals health bodies, and when I say health professionals, from all, you know, allied health and medical professions, and they also had women with PCOS involved too to try and kind of get an understanding from all sides, from all areas of of people who are experiencing or working in the PCOS space, so that's kind of good. But as you said, yeah, there's these guidelines and sometimes translating them is harder than thought and that's why we needed 
there's actual science behind it, implementation science. So what we found out was, of, so I must admit, I'm coming from a dietetic perspective. So there's, you know, there's the endocrinology side and there's a the psychology side. And so there's different sections of recommendations, which maybe it's not my full expertise because I'm not a psychologist or an endocrinologist. So I'm just going to talk about more from a lifestyle perspective mm-hmm. um, and the implementation side. So we do know that women, first of all, they the biggest things is that women want to see professionals who are PCOS trained or who understand PCOS. They are sick of going and seeing their GP or any other profession who doesn't understand PCOS and just kind of gives them general recommendations, which are probably okay for PCOS, but they're not really, they don't really have a, they're not understanding where the woman is coming from and why she's experiencing the difficulties of behavior change or why she's confused about what she needs to do. And also that profession, but professional, because they understand what PCOS is, they can actually give them some information because a lot of women say that once, especially when they're diagnosed, they're just kind of like in this abyss of, okay, so I have PCOS. Oh, my goodness, I'm not going to get pregnant. I'm never going to have a family. I'm just going to be overweight all the time, but I need to lose weight. Um, and for that, a lot of the women, a lot of women, that, that's all they're told, just lose weight and come back to me. Or they're only told to do anything about it once they actually want to start having children, which is not what you should do. You should do it. You should start managing your symptoms as soon as possible. Whether women want children in their life or not, that's not the factor that should be determined of whether you receive care or not. So that's one of the things. So that professionals basically need to know what they're doing and they understand PCOS and the treatment for PCOS and also that they can have additional support. So they're not just told again, as I said, to lose weight, but there are referral pathways. There is a support team. They can go see a dietitian. They can go see a psychologist. They can go see an exercise physiologist. Uh, or a specialist like a gyno or an endo, there's actually some referral pathways that are put into place so they can have a care plan and, and a team, a PCOS team around them so they can better manage their PCOS and improve their quality of life and meet their whatever their health goal is that that's actually met. The next one is that the care that they provide is multidisciplinary. So as I said, that there is that kind of team care. Yeah, it's not just the the GP or it's not just the endocrinologist that they see. And also that their care is long term. Okay, it's so because obviously, uh, as every woman really, but um, our health needs change over our, over our lifespan. And as as I said, PCOS doesn't go away. It stays with you once, you, once you're diagnosed with it. So a woman's health needs, health goals—they change across the across across their life. And so, having someone who understands PCOS and is able to change the type of care that they can um, provide, as as a woman's, I don't know, maybe she wanted to fall pregnant, but then there's postpartum care, or now she wants to now she has menopause symptoms, or whatever it is that yes, yeah, she has um, a long-term relationship with her health professional um, and the team. Other things, for example, with more new gritty, we found that women want. Oh, okay, so let me just backtrack. If you do a lot of Google searching and even the guidelines themselves, there's a bit of focus on weight loss. And yes, weight management can help, but again, it's a little bit easier said than done. And not all women with PCOS are overweight or obese or need to lose weight, which is another very big misconception. So that can be really frustrating for a lot of women, just told to lose weight or maybe they don't even need to lose weight anyway. So having uh, healthcare services talking about weight, but in but in a in an alternative way, not just to focus on weight as that's the that weight loss or your weight equates to health. That is not what women want to know. And they don't really just want to focus on weight per se. It's more about, okay, 
So um, what health behaviours do I need to change? You know, how many fruit and vegetables, what type of veggies are best for me? Do I need to cut out carbohydrates? Is dairy okay? Do I need to go on a specific diet? Is there a PCOS diet? Is there a PCOS diet? No, there's no PCOS (laughs) diet. (laughs) Well, we can get into this, but this is what women want to, to know and they want to know obviously a bit of that reasoning why but so so they want to acknowledge that there needs to be a, a weight change if it's appropriate because mm-hmm. it's not always appropriate but don't just tell me that I need to lose weight how actually will I need to do it that's individualized to my needs in an evidence-based way it's a big one it's evidence-based that is supportive through lifestyle change in a way that meets that is healthy so it's not just about restriction but it's yeah balanced balanced change that is not going to promote, you know, disordered eating or eating disorders as well. Wow. That's uh, everything. I feel like that's like a running theme with women and health and medical services. Mm. The resounding kind of uh, factor for me is women just want to be understood and mm-hmm. women want to be listened to mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not disregarded. And I feel like that's a running theme for birth, for postpartum, Mm -hmm. for, you know, all factors of Mm -hmm. of our lives. And Mm -hmm. it's, um, yeah, it's a highly uh, topical debate at the moment, particularly in birth at the moment with lockdown and people getting nervous and a lot of inductions (laughs) are um, being offered to women just to kind of get them through the system. And, mm-hmm. you know, women are not necessarily being listened to in, in terms mm-hmm. of their health needs. So I, I, I find it fascinating but not unsurprising that that was yeah, some of the findings that you yes. had. Yeah. And so walk us through like an example, Steph. So if someone mm-hmm. came to you um, because you've got a practice, womanly nutrition and dietetics. Yes, yeah. Let's go through a scenario. Someone comes to you, they've been diagnosed with PCOS. What are the mm-hmm. types of examples that you could offer them as, you know, some lifestyle changes? I don't want to call it treatment because I feel like, yeah. you know, that's sometimes a bit of Very a rubber, nice rubber stamp label, <laughs> you know. But what are the, what are the types of things if, if someone or if someone – my other question is actually on this point. If someone's listening to this and they feel like, oh, okay, yeah, I I might actually have, you know, t- one, two or three of those symptoms that mm-hmm. we were first describing, mm-hmm. who, where would they start? Who are the best mm-hmm. professionals to go to to kind of get that ball rolling for mm-hmm. a diagnosis and also, you know, perhaps to make some changes to... Mm-hmm alleviate those symptoms yeah yep yep okay so if um some a woman out there or someone out there is experiencing or thinks they may have pcos the first point of call is to go to a gp now if you have if you know of a gp who maybe understands pcos wonderful if you go to a gp and you feel like maybe they didn't really hear you well or they don't know all that much about PCOS, which is absolutely fine because general practitioners need to know everything, and yep. but we can't know everything, we're human. Try try a couple. Try, you know, even up to three or four to see how you go and see if you get different experiences. But a GP is where you want to start from and then you get a few blood tests, maybe you get a referral to get a, an ultrasound and then go from there. Once you, if you are diagnosed, it, I hopefully the GP would uh, recommend you to go see a gynecologist or an endocrinologist or a dietitian who is 
understanding of PCOS or, yeah, that they, you have a bit of a referral pathway to get, a, again, that team. Normally, specialists like endocrinologists, our gynecologists, sometimes they are, you do need to have a fee paying. So sometimes that can inhibit some women, but it is very much recommended. And if, if that doesn't come up in conversation with your GP, ask. And then, yeah, with, if you were to come to myself, definitely I would recommend go see a dietitian as well as an exercise physiologist and maybe a psychologist if you if you think that you need a bit of help from a mental or a behaviour change perspective. But behaviour change, as I said, is 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 actually the first line of treatment for PCOS with or without medication. So if, let's say, a woman comes to me and uh, I got a referral, I might get a, maybe a Medicare, like an EPC care plan, or I just might be a woman has just come on her own initiative. I would kind of assess their eating habits and their dietary intake, the diet quality, uh, any medical conditions in, other than PCOS, how long ago did, did was the diagnosis confirmed, any other, the actual blood tests as well, most recent blood tests, if there aren't any, any in the last six months, I'd recommend a new a fresh batch because they will impact our recommendations. For example, I look at their hormones and I look at insulin, for example, um, one of the main ones. And then I would I try to understand, okay, what is the health goal of the woman trying to trying to receive help from me? Do they want to lose weight? Do they want to improve their PCOS? Do they are they just confused about what to do? Are they actually wanting to improve their fertility because they were thinking about actually trying to have a child because that's when they got diagnosed, they found it was hard to fall pregnant, which tends to be the most time that women actually get diagnosed. So I look at that and then we go from there. A lot of the times, to be honest, it's a lot of information giving and education at the beginning because, as I said, that it, it's a, not a lot of information is provided. And when you Google, there's some really good websites, but there's some really not great websites. So it can be very confusing. So we just kind of go through a few myths. So one of them, for example, is that, oh, should I cut out dairy? I've I've read that a lot of women improve their symptoms, especially um, bowel symptoms or have bloating or they don't have acne when they just eliminate dairy. But just there's absolutely no evidence to show that reducing dairy or cutting out dairy is is actually good for PCOS. Some women find that dairy sometimes or reducing dairy for at least two weeks take, helps with acne. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, it's so skin health is so much what impacts skin health is a lot more than just the food. It's also stress or hormones, how active you are, all these things, the type of skincare that you're using, <laughs> masks. <laughs> are we using masks? <laughs> they clean on our face. So, yeah, so so you actually don't have to cut dairy, for example, and whether you need to go gluten-free and is there a PCOS diet and, and sometimes going through and assessing as well, uh, which is what I do in initial assessment, is to see if there's any disordered eating kind of behaviour there. And so that will definitely affect the type of approach that I take. So I don't take a really a diet approach anyway and I don't take a weight loss approach, but I definitely am, I suppose, a bit more sensitive to it because I don't want to further promote those behaviours and if if anything, I'm trying to work to reverse them. And so that time takes a little bit, you know, because it's kind of psychology and changing the way the brain works um, and our relationship with food, et cetera. So that's all a lot of the things that that I look at. And then I also recommend some tracking of symptoms and seeing how that changes across the across the the journey together and you know even mood changes or any cravings 
looking at making sure that you're actually having a good diet quality. So, for example, with PCOS, we know because it's a chronic inflammatory disease, we need to try and overcome that inflammation. So having more fruit and veggies than the recommended general woman is really important. So we make sure that that's happening. There's some women with PCOS tend to be a bit carbohydrate, more carbohydrate sensitive than, than someone else. So maybe we need to look at do we need a little bit more protein on the plate compared to compared to you know what what the general recommendations um, for the Australian population recommend. But that is definitely not to mean that we need a low carbohydrate diet or we need to go on a ketogenic diet or whatever these things is doesn't mean we have to restrict carbohydrates. So so, yeah, we just look at that. Any supplements that's required, I would look at. Yeah, and exercising and going through a bit of, to be honest, a bit of a bit of myth busting there as well. It's okay. You don't have to just because you do a bit of weights doesn't mean that you're going to become and look like a man or that you're going to really increase your muscles or it does. It's not going to make your PCOS worse. Your testosterone is going to increase and make the PCOS symptoms worse. That is not correct at all. But um, including a bit of cardio as well is the best. But even in with recommendations for physical activity and PCOS, there actually aren't, you know, a specific set of physical activity guidelines. It's just the best. The best is to get depending on what the recommendation is. If it's weight loss, about three hundred minutes of moderate activity. If it's weight, you know, you just want to no weight change, about one hundred fifty minutes for optimal health, and that'll help with improving insulin sensitivity and and mood and. It also allows, you know, I'm not sure if you've experienced it, but sometimes if I know I'm being more active, I want to, I tend to, it's easier to eat well and because you're just feeling better. So it makes the changes a little bit easier that way. So Mm, it's cyclic, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's cyclic. And then, um, and then I also recommend or see anyway, if the person is, is, has an external team. So seeing if they need to go to a physio or if they need to go to an exercise physiologist or if you go to an endocrinologist or a gyno. Sometimes women have have those in place, a lot of time not. So we just make sure that if there is a need of a referral, that there is there. Yeah, but a lot of the things, it's like there's a, obviously there's a many things going on here. We don't do them all at the same time, and it really depends on what, what her symptoms are, what she wants to get out of her, you know, her immediate goal is. Yeah, and what 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 she can, what she is up to, basically. Basically. Yeah, that's that's great, uh, and it's as you say, it's multifactorial. So yeah. it is all all about having a team around you mm-hmm. and getting mm-hmm. kind of support from each one of those yes. angles. Yes. And yes. and so once someone kind of sees you, how long do you monitor them for? And, and mm-hmm. you know, again, everything is a bell curve, so everyone's not mm-hmm. going to fit in the normal, you know, mm-hmm. middle bucket. Mm-hmm. But approximately you know, how many sessions and, and when would someone expect to see changes in their symptoms? Mm, yeah, so good. So that's a really good question. So in terms of the, in regards to how long I would see someone, I've seen woman, women maybe I would say between three to three years, three months to three years. It really depends how long, what their goal was, how, you know, if I've stayed in, in touch with them. But, yeah, so uh, normally if there's an initial consultation, goes for an hour. 
to be honest, sometimes it's more than that, especially if there's a lot of um, kind of myth busting that needs to happen, a lot of education. And then the first review, I would say, is in two weeks normally because mm-hmm. there's a lot of, you know, di- dietary changes or behavior changes. So we need to implement them and there'll be good days and bad days. So we look over what worked, what didn't work and how we can overcome them. And then depending on on the changes that are made, the progress, the barriers, what else needs to be done, we kind of go from there. But normally maybe a month after the first review is another another kind of review. And then, yeah, it's very, it really depends. It's very, very Sorry, just to follow on from that, just there, yeah. you mentioned the timeline between pre and post-pregnancy. Do yeah. the symptoms change during pregnancy and and postpartum is it because obviously there's a huge change in hormones in pregnancy and postpartum does that does that have an effect and and obviously you know do you tweak and adapt according to those kind of periods in their life absolutely yeah absolutely so it it, would have if it's during pregnancy then you look at pregnancy and the recommendations but then sometimes for example Normally with PCOS, there is an increased risk of gestational diabetes. Not always, but obviously there is an increased risk during pregnancy. So making sure that the woman is, if there's any cravings or that they are getting the the right carbohydrates across the day, there's adequate protein as well. If So that's early on in the pregnancy. And also just making sure that there are kind of tests getting done to to see if there is gestational diabetes. If it is actually diagnosed, then that we are very strict with the amount of you know not strict but there's we focus a lot more on on carbohydrates and and when to have them in the amount because you do need to be as you know a little bit more kind of aware of um, blood sugars during during pregnancy because they are quite tight in terms of recommendations and then we also a lot lot of the time the cravings thing is a big one so we look at that because um, that can also have a lot of impact on physical activity and also weight gain and we do know that the weight gain because during pregnancy, uh, a woman is increased risk of, as I said, G- GDM, but also large vegetational age babies. So we don't. Want, you know, it's best for women not to gain a lot of excessive weight um, from and trying to change behaviours to try and reduce that is great because it also will help them with PCOS coming once they have they enter the pregnancy and in their postpartum, mm-hmm. especially if they were thinking then long term about having another child. It'd be really better, much easier. If, they reduce their weight between pregnancies as well. It makes a lot of uh, it. Re- my goodness, tongue tied. It um, <laughs> negatively affects the health outcomes of the mother and the baby for the second pregnancy as well. So they're kind of the one of the some of the major things that to be honest come up: insulin and cravings, weight management, but also a lot of the things as well during pregnancy is a lot of women are misinformed about what they can have. They're they're afraid of having veggies or fish. So just going through that and making sure that they actually their diet quality is still quite good, and that they can actually also still they can still move, you know. So you don't have to be sedentary the whole time. Movement is really important for 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 the mum and the baby as well. So just looking, yeah, just looking at a lot of those things. But in terms of changes, how long it takes? How long mm. it takes to do changes? Let's say so some mood or energy kind of changes they can happen within a few days. To be honest, even like a couple of days. More in terms of changes in relation to, you know, hormones or changes in, in periods and things like this, probably about three months. Mm-hmm. Changes in relation, because there's increased risk of, as uh, we've already mentioned, but like type 2 diabetes, even cardiovascular disease, so cholesterol and all these things, they probably take about three months to start with. Yeah. And there's normally sometimes supplementation that's re- recommended in addition to dietary changes. So, for example, inositol supplementation, for example, which is a B vitamin or 
NAC and acetyl cysteine, they normally take about three months for changes to start to happen. So, yeah, it really depends for a few days to at least about three months. Yeah. Perfect. That that explains a lot. I've, I found it really fascinating. And I reckon it would be really hard in pregnancy to kind of watch those carbs in those first few months yeah. in that first trimester because I almost turned into a potato gem in that first, I would say, 15 weeks because that was literally the only thing I could stomach. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the I'm the chef in this household and my husband had to take over because I literally could not open a fridge without feeling like I was going to hurl and in the end we ended up getting light and easy meals because yeah. I was just like I can't stand the smell of raw meat in the house yeah. so I was like it's pre-cooked we're just going to throw it in the microwave and that's how we survived because otherwise yes I would have turned into a potato jam. <laughs> and to be honest, that's fine too. Like having pre, you know, pre-cooked meals, or it's really important to to find out what works best for you and for your circumstance. So, yeah, but a, a lot of the time as well, a lot of women report that yeah they can't cook anything, or that they can't stomach anything, or that there's that morning sickness, and then that kind of that kind of because there's like a lot of eating happening, so they tend to have cravings later in the day, or maybe not the best choices, you know, more sugary, carby, carby foods, which is fine, but they tend to be the most more refined carbohydrates, mm-hmm. which don't do well for just general health and well-being of both the the mum and, and the baby. So we're just look, like looking at all these things. But as I said, again, it's very individualised on the, on the person. And I'm just saying a lot of general things, but it really yeah. depends on the person. Yeah. For all those playing at home, this is not medical advice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> seek seek uh, an opinion from your healthcare professional. Please, but please. with that said, Steph, um, I'm mindful of your time. If someone would like to reach out to you or book an appointment, where are you located? Mm. How can we get in contact with you? Yeah. yeah. So I'm actually provide telehealth services. So I'm an online clinic. So I can yeah help women all across Australia, and no matter where you are, what time. So my website is www.womanly. So w o m a n l y, and then n for nutrition and d for dietetics. dot uh, com. Or else I also have an Instagram page, Womanly Nutrition Dietetics or Womanly ND, and also a Facebook page. And if you have any inquiries, you can yeah just email me on www.womanlynd.com or else just send me an inquiry through the website. Yeah, I provide telehealth services for women with PCOS, all evidence-based always. I think it's really important. All my recommendations are always evidence-based. And yeah, um, I also see women for fertility or any other chronic type 2 diabetes or prevention of type 2 diabetes or if they have, if they have high cholesterol, for example. I also see women with endometriosis because sometimes that is also very much coupled with PCOS. So, yeah, that's how you can contact me. And if you have any questions, I'm always happy to answer any questions, even through email or Instagram. It, it's it's all, all fine. Happy I, to help. I can absolutely attest to that because I shoot things through to Steph and your website actually has some fantastic resources on it as well. I've was reading through all of those for my research for this interview and with that I'm glad you touched on the endometriosis because we will have Steph back for another episode on the podcast to discuss endometriosis. It's another condition that is, I was saying to this to Steph before, quite close to my heart. Um, it's a hereditary condition in my family. Fortunately, I have 
skipped it, but it affects a lot of women close Mm -hmm. to me and I would love to understand more about that. So everyone stay tuned for that episode. But with that, thank you so much, Steph, for your time. You have enlightened me (laughs) about a disorder (laughs) that I knew very, very little about this, you know, a few weeks ago. And congratulations again on your PhD. Um, We need more people like you bridging the gap between the bureaucrats and the guidelines and actually getting those proper practical implementations out to to female patients. So um, congratulations again on that. Thanks so much, Renee. Yes, I'm very glad to have had the opportunity, but I'm glad it's done. But um, <laughs> the best is to help women. That That's actually the reason why I did my PhD, to understand and to better inform this area because I found as a dietitian there was not a lot of information coming out, so I thought this is a great place. So yeah, thank you so much for having me, Renee. And um, I just want to help women in this space um, and to actually get the correct information because there's a lot of misinformation. It can be very confusing and frustrating for women. So, yeah, thanks for having me and for everyone for listening. Thanks very much. See ya. Thank you. Bye. Bye. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services, including our postpartum in-home care and our Fill Your Freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.